This is Transforming Culture, an MBC podcast. Welcome, everyone. You're here for the second episode of Transforming Culture Season 2. If you haven't already given it a listen, I would recommend you head back to Episode 1 and hear what our friend Todd Morikawa has to say about educating your children in today's world. This week, we have Paul Carter, pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church, sharing with us about generational divides. I'm an early millennial, and some of what he had to say during his talk really had me laughing, but also thinking about how I engage and work with people around me who are from different generations. Of course, that matters so much more in the church as we wrestle with the changing cultural norms that exist today as well. All in all, I think you're going to walk away from today feeling like you have a better grasp of the core needs and wants of a group of generations, all of whom really need Jesus. Paul Carter lives in the city of Aurelia with his wife and five children. He's a self-described Bible geek and has a passion to help people build their lives on the solid rock of Jesus in his word. In his role as lead pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church, he oversees the weekly worship as well as the overall ministry direction and content. He is blessed to provide guidance to an enormously talented and committed group of staff and volunteers. And while his heart and passion is for the local church, he enjoys many opportunities to serve the wider bride. He sits on the executive council for the Gospel Coalition, where he is a regular author and blogger, and he is the host and Bible teacher for Into the Word podcast and radio program. That's it for now. Let's dive in and give a listen to Paul Carter speaking to us about understanding and bridging the great generational divide. Well, our our title for this evening is uh, Generations Bridging the Cultural Divide. Uh, The title and the theme are largely, not entirely, but largely inspired uh, by Gene Twenge's recent book came out about two months ago. Uh, It's called Generations. She is, as I mentioned, she's not a believer. Uh, she is, I would say she's respectful towards the social role played by religion in North America, but she is by no means uh, a believer. What she is, is a, a data monster. Uh, she has just accumulated uh, mountains and reams of information. Uh, there's, a, there's a several page appendix where she lists all the surveys that she accessed in order to create these uh, statistics and charts. And it's quite overwhelming. I, uh, I've read the book, and then I also listened on audio uh, while I was driving uh, back or down to Tennessee, and then back from Tennessee, I went hiking with my, my son and my dad. And uh, we, we had it on audiobook where uh, when we got to the end and went listening to this long list of all the uh, surveys that she accessed, and we just left it on because we were you know enjoying the drive. And it was, it was like 15 minutes of her <laughs> listing all of these surveys that she accessed. So it really, the value of the book is the breadth of data uh, presented. And uh, the burden of the book is to explain why things have changed so far so fast. 
and, and why it is that we have such a hard time understanding each other right now in this particular cultural moment in North America. And uh, so her entire research project has been trying to figure out why there seem to be blocks and tranches of, of people who, who broadly think the same way, and then another tranche of people who broadly think the same way, and then another, there are these various groups and tranches. Why is that? Now, one quick thing that should be said about any kind of conversation like this is you might be sitting here and you say, well, I'm a baby boomer and I don't, I, I don't do any of the things you just mentioned. Well, of course, there are, there are outliers. Um, this, this sort of conversation is about averages and aggregates uh, and sort of saying, so this group of people is more likely to think this way and more likely to believe this. And this group is more like, but there are always going to be outliers and exceptions, uh, but that doesn't disprove the rule. Uh, it, it, you know, for example, anytime you're, you're talking in generalities, if I were to say on average, men weigh 30 pounds uh, more than, than women. On average, well, we but we can always say, well, I, I have a friend who you know who weighs so and so, and her husband weighs so and so. Okay, sure, but on average, uh, you know, we could say men are a certain amount taller and a certain amount heavier on average. And similarly, you can say that about these various demographic groups. And that's what she's done. She's accumulated all this information, and it's valuable to us. Uh, it's valuable to me. I'll speak personally. There's two reasons that I'm drawn to this information. I've been reading all of her books and some other parallel uh, researchers as well. And there's two reasons I'm interested. Uh, the first has to do with my church. One of our values as a church is that we are multi-generational by design. Um, I actually started off my ministry life in a church that was open and explicit about the fact that it was a targeted church. We used to say, we didn't hide it. I felt like we should have, but we didn't. We would say, we're a church for baby boomers and their children. And, and we were quite explicit about that, that, hey, we think it's easier, more efficient, and better to target a specific generation uh, because you can just cluster your services, right? Like we knew what baby boomers wanted, and baby boomers all at the time had kids in junior high and senior high at the time uh, when I was in that church. And so we could just kind of cluster our services around that and, and, and serve those people. But here's the challenge with that. Who, who is going to target a church at seniors or the disabled? No one. And, and, and it calls into question the entire purpose and identity of the church. The church is supposed to be multi-generational. The church is supposed to be a family, meaning it's supposed to have grandmas and parents and aunties and uncles and kids and nieces and nephews. That's what the church is. It is multi-generational by design. And so that's a passion of mine. Uh, I always say to people, if you're coming to this church, because you to our church, because you think we're going to have the coolest music, let me give you a map to a church that's got better music than us. Uh, our church, our philosophy of music is the same as you get when you're in a car as a family driving to Florida with grandma, which is to say, we're going to, you know, we're going to listen to some music that the kids like. We're going to listen, you know, mom and dad are going to pop in Aerosmith. And then we're going to listen to some Gaither as well for grandma. Is that okay? And anybody who complains is getting chucked out of the rest stop uh, because we're a family, right? And uh, so anyway, I'm passionate about it from that perspective. But then I'm also passionate about this research because a lot of her research ends up landing on why are young people today so different than the rest of us. And I've got five children who actually fall within the parameters of Gen Z. So pray for me. 
pray for me uh, regularly, daily, hourly. Uh, pray for me. So I'm I'm passionate about this stuff. Now we're tight for time, as has been mentioned. So I'll just lay out what we're going to do, and then we're going to get right into it. Uh, we're going to divide our discussion into five sections. Uh, we're going to talk first of all about what generations are active in North American culture today. We'll talk about how generational differences occur. Uh, why why are there generational differences? What creates them? We'll talk in greater depth about Gen Z. I imagine, again, that's why many of you have come out. You're trying to figure out your kids or your grandkids. And then we'll talk about what's coming up behind Gen Z. And then finally, we'll talk about the challenges and opportunities in the cultural context because of these various realities, the, the opportunities and the challenges for the church. All right, so let's jump right into it. Number one, what generations are active in North America today? Now, you might... There, I could have listed the generation before this. There are one or two or three. There's a handful of these folks in, in every church and every community still. But these are the, the active generations, okay? So we'll start with the silence. The silent generation are those that were born from 1925 to 1945. So to put that in perspective, my parents are silent, okay? So uh, let me frame this for you. These are not the people that we refer to as the greatest generation. The greatest generation has almost entirely died off now. Um, like that's the generation we could say, well, technically they still exist. Yes, there's a handful of them still in nursing homes and whatnot. But the greatest generation, the generation that like fought and won World War II, uh, they're gone. Uh, when I first started, I've been at the church that I'm at for 17 years. When I first started on Remembrance Day, we had like seven, eight, nine veterans that would come to the front. We have zero now. Uh, they're all they're all gone. Um, so the the active generation of older people in your church typically are going to be silence. Um, and they were given that name. It's an odd name, but they were given that name by Time Magazine back in 1951. And what they were noticing is that young people, so they were talking about teenagers at the time, uh, young people were less politically active than previous generations, and they had less seemingly less to say about social issues. And so they were referred to as the silent generation. Uh, silence became very committed to domestic life. They were the most marrying generation in North American history. This is the generation that first experienced television as teenagers. So th these, these were kids who were either born during World War II or, or before World War II. So they experienced World War II as children, they were too young to fight, so they were not part of the greatest generation, but they weren't born after, like the baby boomers. So that's, that's the generation we're talking to, are talking about. So they experienced teen, uh, television as teenagers. My mom, for example, again, who's a silent generation, she loves to tell the story of when she was a teenager and their family bought their first television. And they bought it because my grandfather wanted to watch Maple Leaf hockey games, and uh, she wanted to watch Elvis concerts. And so she remembers seeing Elvis on shows like uh, the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, so they had a, a, a black and white television that they would sit around for events. You would, it was an event like this Friday, we're going to gather at the television to watch, you know, Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show. Or, you know, this Saturday, we're going to gather around the television to watch the hockey game. And, and then otherwise, the, the TV sat there off. It was quite a different experience. Television, though, really did change the silent generation. They were the first generation in North America to really be aware of what was happening in the rest of the world, because that's what the television did. It gave you a window into the lives of other people. The silence were remarkably stable. They experienced very low depression rates. 
they had very few deaths of despair. Deaths of despair means suicide and then also drug and alcohol overdoses. Uh, as I mentioned, they were the most marrying generation in North American history. And even when they got divorced, they quickly got remarried, even if they were not religious. So think of Larry King. Uh, every time Larry King, of course, is you know a little bit older than my parents, but part of the same generation. Every time Larry got divorced, 20 minutes later, he got remarried. And you're like, Larry, you don't believe in Jesus, and you're clearly not committed to monogamy. What are you doing, brother? And it was almost habit. Uh, that generation just believed, uh, you know, if you're sleeping with somebody, you ought to be married. Uh, they were generally religious, hardworking, and committed to family. And they were more educated than their, family, uh, than their parents. So, for example, when I, as a boy, would talk to my grandparents, it kind of surprised me to discover that very few people in my grandparents' generation had university degrees. Very few. And then in my parents' generation, it became actually quite common. Uh, one third of them earned a college or university degree. All right, so that's the silent generation. The boomers, uh, we know about the boomers, the baby boom. It's because all the soldiers came home and got married. And, uh, and then there was a baby boom, as will, as will happen. So uh, the baby boomers are those born between 1946. Of course, the war ended in 1945, so 1946 through to 1964. Uh, interestingly, demographers anticipated that the baby boom would be very small. Uh, they thought it would only last for a couple of years. But birth rates in North America remained astonishingly high all the way through 1957, producing the largest generation in North American history. The baby boomers grew up, and they were always the people everyone was interested in because they were the largest generation. They were the biggest block of consumers. Everything has been marketed to baby boomers. Everything has been tailored to, to baby boomers. They dominated North American culture for 70 years. Now, the baby boomers can never remember a time without television. So unlike my parents, who love to tell the story of when their family got the television, baby boomers never remember a world without television. They were raised on TV. Uh, they also grew up at a time when household appliances were cheap and universally available, or at least widely available. So for example, my grandparents love to tell the story of when they first got a refrigerator uh, or when they first uh, you know, uh, got a washing machine. And my parents will remember those things because those things happened in their childhood. Baby boomers have no such memories and no such conversations. They grew up in houses that were air-conditioned. Uh, they had uh, washing machines and microwaves. Uh, they, they had all of that through their entire uh, childhood and life, and that had a huge impact on them. They're also the first generation to uh, engage broadly and, and commonly in sex outside of marriage. Now, I'm just going to press a pause and say, remember, this is not a sermon. So I'm not telling you what should be, or what. so please don't write down and say, well, now I'm a baby boomer, so I can go, no, no, listen, I'm just describing what is, and I'm giving you numbers and statistics that have been gathered, okay? So none of this is what is or what ought. This is all just what is, okay? So uh, baby boomers were really the first generation to embrace sex outside of marriage. Like I mentioned, Larry... Larry King, for whatever reason, not being a Christian, you know, he just felt like he ought to marry whoever he was having sex with. So he got married like 11 times or whatever it was. Like that was very much the silent generation. Baby boomers were the first generation that had a high comfort level with sex outside of marriage. And a lot of that had to do with the invention of the birth control pill in 1960. They were the first generation also to have relatively open views on homosexuality. Before the baby boomers, homosexuality was not 
something that was open in any sense in North American society. The baby boomers also used drugs at an unprecedented rate. Of course, the baby boomers uh, were the hippies in the 60s, but interestingly, they then became the yuppies in the 80s. And that's another interesting thing about the baby boomers. They started out wanting to change the world, but by the 80s, they just wanted to own the world. Uh, they went through a lot of changes. They started off wanting to stick it to the man, and they ended off climbing the corporate ladder and reaching the very top. The baby boomers are the most materialistic generation in North American history. They were more divorce-prone, they had fewer kids, and they experienced more depression than any generation in living memory. They were very liberal as young people and teenagers, and they have drifted extremely conservative in their retirement. Boomers are richer, more politically powerful, and more individualistic than the silence, but their personal and home lives have been far less stable. The rate of deaths of despair among baby boomers is, is deeply concerning. Uh, right now, like, so if you're a church and you're thinking, well, how can we reach out to baby boomers? Uh, when I started in ministry, you reached out to baby boomers by offering support to their kids, youth group, children's ministry, et cetera. Now you do it by offering addictions counseling and divorce recovery. Um, an astonishing number of baby boomers are getting divorced late in life and struggling with alcoholism. It's a serious issue. The largest tranche of boomers turned 65 in 2022, and thus a wave of retirements is expected in the next five years that will produce a massive labor shortage. We're already experiencing that because many baby boomers took early retirement over the course of COVID. Caring for the baby boomers is going to stress our society to the breaking point as they get older for a couple of reasons. As I mentioned, there are an astonishing number of them. And so when your population is shaped like an upside down triangle, you're headed for economic crisis because the number of baby boomers that are going to be taxing the healthcare system, because they'll all live to be 89 or 90 years old. And meaning, and they put all the stress on the healthcare system between 68 and 90. And there's going to be myriads of them supported by a worker base that is actually very small in comparison. This is why there's so much pressure on people right now to, to take medical assistance in dying. People are being told, do your family a favor, do the healthcare system a favor, and, and, and take medical assistance in dying. Now, there's a sense in which that's horrific and awful, and I, I, there, but there's also a sense in which you can understand why people are saying that. I'm not saying it's right, it's wrong. But I'm, it's easy to understand, and it's going to get worse. The, the pressures are, are astonishing. Caring for the boomers, as I mentioned, is going to put incredible stress on us as a society. We'll have to figure it out. All right, Gen X, that's me. So that's uh, easy to figure out. Best generation, obviously. Nothing wrong with them. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. So uh, those are folks born between 1965 and 1979. Uh, important technologies for the boomers, they are for the uh, Gen Xers. They had television from infancy. They had internet as teens, and they had social media as adults. Uh, Gen X is the last generation to have enjoyed an analog childhood, uh, right? So we played with toys. Uh, we called our friends on rotary phones. Uh, it, one of the things that if you want to get a guy like my age talking, ask him the phone numbers of all his childhood friends. I still have them memorized. Tommy Edwards, 727-4190. Uh, 
Uh, I called that number five times a day for 16 years. Um, and nobody knows anybody's phone number anymore because you flip it up and you press their picture, right? Like you, it's, they're in your context. Flip it up. That tells you how old I am, right? Uh, but so we, we called people on rotary phones. We used card catalogs at the library. Uh, we went to see Star Wars in the movie theater and then on our birthdays rented beta machines and watched it at home with our friends. Uh, that was our childhood. We also, Gen X is famous for uh, leash-free parenting, meaning we were all just kind of set loose in the neighborhood. We rode our bikes. Uh, we made forts. We shot the neighbor's dog with kibble and a slingshot. Uh, and then we were told basically to come home when the streetlights came on. If you want help understanding uh, Gen X, I suppose you could just watch Stranger Things. Uh, Stranger Things is a shameless attempt uh, to capitalize on Gen X nostalgia. Uh, it's our... Uh, childhood plus Twilight Zone, all crammed uh, together. Uh, I'm not recommending the show. I'm just telling you what it is, okay? Uh, Gen X, though, grew up at a time when all these new technologies were coming on the scene. So Twenge notes, she says, Gen Xers landed right in the middle of the influence of, influences of technology, individualism, and the slow life strategy. We'll talk about that in a minute. They were born after TV, came of age with computers, and then the internet, and got smartphones and social media as adults. So I still remember as an adult, as a pastor, a bunch of my friends mocking me for being so late to the smartphone game. Uh, I had a clamshell uh, flip phone that I was very happy with until my mid-30s. Uh, I was in my late 30s before I got a BlackBerry, and I got my first iPhone when I was 40. Uh, so I was late, late to the technology game, uh, but it all has happened in my lifetime, in my adulthood. Gen Xers were also the children of divorce. So they grew up in the time when the silence were getting divorced, but then quickly remarried, a la Larry King, and the older boomers were getting divorced and not remarried or perhaps remarried. Uh, their relatively independent childhood combined with their disillusionment with authority figures and their parents because of the introduction of divorce has combined to make them both resilient and cynical. They tend not to trust the system, and unlike the boomers, they do not aspire to change the system. They just want to make enough money to be happy. Generation X had sex early and often, both before and during marriage. They had a very high teenage pregnancy rate. They used drugs far less than the boomers, but were actually far more violent. Gen X teens and young adults produced a crime wave and a spike in the murder rate in the 1990s. Gen Xers continued the trend towards earning college degrees with 30% earning a four-year degree by the age of 30. Gen Xers surprised observers by having a lot of kids, though they had them in unusual ways. Gen Xers were the first people to normalize single parenthood and also cohabitation. With the boomers retiring, Gen Xers are now those who are rising to top positions in government and business. All right, let's talk about millennials. Millennials are those born between 1980 and 1994. So that means they are between the ages of 29 and 43. By the way, nothing irritates young people more than assuming that all young people are millennials. Uh, so if you if you say to like a 21-year-old, you know, you millennials with your gidget gadgets, and uh, they will immediately write you off as a dinosaur. Here's what you need to know about millennials. Important technology is they had internet as children, social media, and smartphones as teens. Major events 
9-11 as older children and teens, and the Great Recession as teens and young adults. Twenge notes here, she says, Millennials' upbringing was relentlessly positive with the strong economy, the computer revolution, and the end of the Cold War. So this is the generation of Barney. This is the generation where everybody got a trophy. Uh, this is the generation where everybody got an A, and it was impossible to fail at school. Uh, millennials were raised by boomers, and boomers wanted their children to be shielded from danger and failure. However, the events of 9-11 introduced a cloud and also a dose of realism. 9-11 convinced these millennial young people that sometimes the world doesn't turn out the way you'd like it to, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. Millennials grew up with the internet. Uh, they remember AOL, Yahoo, and 14.4 speed modems. Uh, they were the generation that used flip phones to text their friends, pressing each button three times to get the letter you wanted. Their young adulthood saw the introduction of smartphones, apps, and social media. They are the most educated generation in human history. And they may actually hold that title for some time because Gen Z does not have the educational ambition that millennials have had. This has contributed to the perception amongst millennials that they are poorer than their parents and grandparents, which is actually demonstrably untrue. But if you talk to a millennial, if you want to get a millennial talking, ask them why it's so much harder for them than it is for their parents and grandparents. And they will tell you, they'll say, you know, when my grandfather was 25, he already owned a house. And you say, yes. Your grandfather also graduated from high school at 18 and started working in a factory. He was married by 19, had two kids, and he and his wife bought a house for $20,000 that they lived in until they died. Uh, you, however, at 25, are just uh, applying for the first year of your master's program and won't have a full-time job for four years. Uh, and that's why now you, at 35, have not accumulated the same assets that your parents had at that time. So in, in, in fact, what the reality is, is that millennials are simply passing through middle adulthood far slower than their parents and grandparents because they have got so much education. A master's degree is average now, seemingly, for millennials. But what's happening is because they're so well-educated, they're actually making up ground very fast and are now actually at the point in their 40s, in their early 40s, where at 40, they have considerably more net worth adjusted for inflation than their parents and grandparents. But because they spend so much time on the internet, they perceive the world through the lens of the internet, which tends to prioritize and privilege negative stories. So there is a perception, a widely held perception among millennials that they are poorer than the generations that came behind them, although that is not true. By two, here, Twenge notes, by 2019, households headed by millennials, so these would be millennials now who were just turning 40, actually made more money than silence, boomers, and Gen Xers at the same age. And yes, that's after the numbers are adjusted for inflation. In contrast to their parents and grandparents, millennials have not embraced marriage or child rearing uh, at anything near historic levels. They are delaying marriage by almost a decade and are having far fewer children than any generation in North American history. Millennials were also the first generation to experience what's called intensive parenting, the idea that children need to be constantly supervised and engaged in constant extracurricular activities. And they have carried that forward into their own parenting approach. Here's an interesting stat. Millennial mothers 
spend more time with their children than any previous generation of mothers in human history. And you say, well, how is that even possible? It, it, it is literally quantum, because mothers, you might say, go back a couple of generations. Think about my grandmother. She wasn't on the floor, you know, conjugating French verbs uh, with her children. She was engaged in hour five of the seven-hour daily marathon of clothes washing. Uh, and, and so it was a completely different experience. So in terms of one-to-one quality time, millennial mothers spend more time with their children than, than any previous generation on record. Um, it's, it's a remarkable change. In fact, millennials spend so much time parenting that they are convinced that it's impossible to have more than one or possibly two children. And everyone watching them is convinced it's better not to have any at all. Uh, it is absolutely remarkable. Millennials are the least religious generation in North American history. Why is religion not attractive to millennials? Twenge answers, in short, because it is not compatible with individualism. And individualism is millennials' core value above all else. Millennials are just coming into their own in the workplace. As I mentioned, they're now in their early 40s or late 30s and will soon compete with Gen Xers for places of leadership in the culture because there are so many of the millennials. So the Gen Xers are a small generation between massive generations. Boomers are massive, millennials are massive, and Xers are in between. And uh, millennials are massive, of course, because they're the children of boomers, right? And so they're coming into their own in culture. All right, Gen Z, born 1995 to 2012. That means they're between 11 and 28 years old. Important technologies, internet, smartphones, and social media from childhood forward. Gen Z has never known a day without social media, without apps, without iPhones. Major events, COVID-19, Donald Trump, and the killing of George Floyd. The oldest members of Gen Z, as I mentioned, are 28. The youngest are 11. We'll talk more about them in just a minute. All right. Section two. And these are quicker. The first is the longest. Section two. What causes generational differences? This is quick. What causes generational differences? The reason these are groups that are identifiable in terms of their average and aggregate opinions and beliefs is twofold, two reasons. Number one, technological differences. Um, there is a ton of research that just indicates that technology changes the way we live and the way we relate. Again, something as simple as an air conditioner. Air conditioners change where people live. Uh, something as simple as washing machines. Washing machines it has been argued, are the most significant technological development prior to the cell phone. It literally changed the experience of women in North America. Uh, it was just a massively significant technology. And so uh, factor number one, technology. Factor number two, major shared life events, like a war or a famine or a depression. These events, or a 9-11, these events shape a generation's consciousness, particularly if these events take place during the childhood or young adulthood of an individual. There's something called the memory golden zone, the Goldilocks zone, the memory zone, where uh, the majority of our perceptions and memories come from. Everybody remembers the time that your memory is most active, apparently, is between the ages of, of basically 12 and 21. Think of how many things you remember from that time period. Like, I can give you the entire starting lineup of the Blue Jays uh, from, from 1985. 
and and uh, it, uh, on a heartbeat. You you could probably ask me, well, what about in 1986 when you know when the Detroit Tigers were making their run at the end of the season? Who was playing center? And boom, I can tell you, that stuff is locked into my memory. Ask me what I had, you know, ask me what I did three days ago, and I have no idea, right? Uh, there, there's a zone in, in which our memories are very fresh, and the impressions were very deep. And any significant event that happens in that zone is going to change how we perceive the world. And so that's, that's what she's arguing. Major events and technology. Those are the things that create these generational tranches. All right, section three, what's going on with Gen Z? I have, as I mentioned, five Gen Z children, so I'm very interested in this generation and very aware of how different they are uh, to young people in previous generations. Gen Z was initially, or sometimes uh, initially, there's usually a bit of a, a lag be before a, a name uh, settles for a generation. For example, millennials. Does anyone remember what millennials were called before they were called millennials? They were called Gen Next. Then for a, a little while, they were called Gen Y. Anyone remember why they were called Gen Y? they came after Gen X, uh, right? Not very creative. And, uh, and, then, and then we settled on millennials. So uh, before Gen Z was Gen Z, it was sometimes called iGen. And the reason it was called iGen is because the dominant technology in their generation was the iPhone. Um, and the dominant shaping influence in this generation has been smartphones and social media. So they grew up in the era of smartphones. They're social media natives. They speak a language their Gen X parents cannot decipher. L-O-L, L-M-A-O, T-T-Y-L, B-R-B-I-M-O. Those are real words to children today. They do almost everything online. They spend less time outside, less time exercising, and less time socializing physically with friends than their parents and grandparents. As a result, they are more obese and more depressed than young people in the past. Gen Z has continued and accelerated the trend towards what's called the slow life strategy. Uh, they get life, so slow life strategy, techno, both technology and uh, major changes in, in uh, life events have contributed to this slower life strategy, meaning people are living longer. So I mentioned that when... Um, the average, when the retirement age was set in America at 65, the average lifespan for, um, for a working male was 61. And, and so the point is, if you go back three generations, people lived short lives. They died at 61. And they were lucky to make it out of childhood. And that changed the way you parented. You were an adult back then by 17. You knew how to run the family tractor. You knew how to work the family farm. And if mom died giving birth to your seventh sibling, which she almost certainly would, you could take over her job in a heartbeat. So you were an adult by 17. Now you don't reach that level of maturity until 27 to 35. That's the slow life strategy. By, you know, by 17, you haven't even figured out where you want to go to university. And after that, you got to figure out where you want to do your master's degree. And then you got to do an internship somewhere and travel around in Europe, and then maybe you'll come back and get a real job. Uh, and, and then maybe you'll get married at 31, and then maybe you'll try to think about having kids at 40. Good luck with that. Uh, that's the slow life strategy, and Gen Z has taken that to the next level. They get their licenses later, so now we're, we're still talking about younger Gen Zs. It is astonishing how indifferent 
Gen Zs are to, the, to getting their license. My wife and I got our license. I got my license four days after I turned 16. I drove myself in my own car to young drivers just so that I could get the reduction of my insurance rate. I got a 19-year-old daughter at home who is still working through her driver's ed and has not yet taken her license test and is totally indifferent. She doesn't care. We, you know, we, we drive her places and she can walk other places and people will pick her up and she's not concerned about that at all. It is astonishing. They get their licenses later, if at all. They have sex later, if at all. By the way, that's a bit shocking to, to most of us. Most of us assume that, you know, the kids these days are out doing who knows what with who They're not. They're not at all. Uh, they're down in the basement looking at things they shouldn't be. Um, but they're have, sex is extremely delayed in this generation. They're taking longer to settle up, uh, upon an educational or occupational trajectory. In addition, they lost two years of their childhood to COVID. Therefore, they tend to present as two to three years less mature than their millennial older siblings and as much as eight to 10 years less mature than their parents and grandparents at the same age. Gen Z has followed the same trend towards individualism uh, that the millennials uh, forged. Their commitment to self-expression has caused them to question everything and to embrace a theory of gender fluidity with an almost religious-like zeal. Interestingly, this trend was not in evidence when Gen Z first started being studied back in 2010. In her earlier book, iGen, Twenge noted that Gen Z was actually skeptical of this surge in transgenderism. They thought that transgender people weren't being true to themselves. And being true to yourself is a key value for Gen Z. However, that has completely changed in the last 13 years. In a recent poll, two-thirds of Gen Z young people now fully support transgender rights, and a staggering 8% identify as either transgender or gender fluid. The increase in identification has almost exclusively been amongst biological females identifying as male or gender fluid. If you're interested in this topic, there's a book that dives deep on this. It's called Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. It's well worth reading. Abigail Schreier is also not a Christian, but she has studied this massive spike in transgender identification among biological females. And in her opinion, it's social contagion. Um, and it, it's, it's just massively significant. And, and finally, society is starting to wake, wake up to the dangers. There are all kinds of countries all around the world that are outlawing these sorts of devastating procedures on female bodies. Gen Z has also embraced the LGBT, uh, the LGB of the LGBT movement with more than 16% identifying as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. That's an astonishing number, by the way. It's never been higher than three before the lap, before millennials, and now it's all the way as high as 16. Twenge notes, by 2021, one in seven high school freshmen were identifying as something other than straight. Again, that is an astonishing number. Not surprisingly, Gen Z is the least marrying generation in American history, at least so far. With the oldest Gen Zers uh, just a few years away from their 30th birthday, they will also likely have the fewest children of any generation in North American history. Connected to this is the fact that they appear to be having the least amount of sex in North American history. Twenge quotes a 24-year-old man as saying, the internet has made it so easy to gratify basic social and sexual needs that there's far less incentive to go out into the meat world and chase those things. 
pornography and masturbation have largely replaced actual sex for a huge swath of this generation. That is tragic. There's a, uh, and this is not, uh, this data is everywhere. Uh, there was a, a Pew study that came out just, just recently from the Pew Research Company that 50% of single men in North America have no interest whatsoever in an actual physical relationship with a woman. 50% of single men, meaning they're not even looking. They say, they say why bother? It'll never happen. It's too complicated. When, they, when you interview young men, a lot of them will say, it, the, the social dynamic with women right now is so dangerous. It's so easy to say the wrong thing. It's so easy to be accused of abuse. They, they are lit. And again, I'm not advocating. This is not me saying what should be. This is me saying what is. They are saying right now, more than 50% of them are saying, it's better to just stay home in the basement and watch porn. That is tragic. That is tragic on multiple, multiple levels. That phrase, the meat world, is telling. Gen Z lives online. They go to school online. They aspire to work online. They bank online. They would do everything from home if they could. Gen Z is concerned about safety, physical, psychological, and social. As I mentioned, they are clamoring for censorship, which is a complete reversal from the baby boomers. When the baby boomers were in school, they were clamoring for free speech. They wanted the right to say whatever they wanted, and it was the professors pumping the brakes. It's now the complete opposite. The students want the faculty to impose limits on what they're allowed to hear. They are concerned that they will be triggered and destabilized by contradictory facts. Gen Z is more politically aware and engaged than their Gen X parents typically were. They vote more and they protest far more aggressively. They expect change at a pace and a magnitude that we've never before seen. And because they view the world largely through the lens of social media and the internet, they believe that it is worse than it is by every conceivable metric. Meaning when you ask Gen Z young people, this is a true story. When you ask them, are things better or worse for women today than they were 100 years ago? They're convinced that they're worse. When you ask Gen Z young people, is there more racism in North American society today than there was 100 years ago? They're convinced that there is more. Because they experience the world through the lens of these cell phones and these social media apps that privilege negative news. All they see is George Floyd. George Floyd was a, so uh, not, if, you don't, if you know me, uh, you'll already know this if you don't know me, but uh, in our family, we have a, a mixture of biological and adopted children. One of, uh, one of my children, my middle child is, uh, is, is black. She had, we had no basically conversations about race un, until the murder of George Floyd. And then it became a, a massive topic of conversation. Why is this happening? It was something she was talking about with friends. It was something she was experiencing. And it was something we needed to talk about. And, and that is just, you know, that's just anecdotal. But that is the reality out there. They think the world is on fire. And they are ready to knock the house down and start again. Many of them are actually surprisingly negative on capitalism and surprisingly open to communism and other forms of government. They are significantly more depressed, 
Twenge, here's a quote, every indicator of mental health and psychological well-being has become more negative among teens and young adults since 2012. What happened in 2012? Anyone? It's the iPhone launch, right? It's the, that's the year the iPhone went ubiquitous. And it's, it's social media. That's when it all started ending up in the pockets of your young people. I think the iPhone was 2007, first generation. Uh, and the, the saturation point, meaning the point at which more than 50% of the people had cell phones and smartphones, I should say, was 2012. Uh, they spend less time in person with friends, as I mentioned. They've got fewer connections with actual people. Twangy notes, suicide rates, particularly among Gen Z girls, are on the rise. The teen suicide rate nearly doubled between 2007 and 2019. Here's perhaps the worst quote in the entire book. Perhaps more shocking, the suicide rate of 10 to 14-year-olds, 10 to 14-year-olds, the suicide rate of 10 to 14-year-olds, most of whom are in elementary and middle, middle school, has tripled overall and nearly quadrupled for girls. Suicide in that age group used to be virtually statistically negligible, meaning it was so rare as to, it was difficult to track. It has quadrupled for girls. Why? Because teenage girls now, young middle school age girls, live their whole lives now in the hallway of the school. So it's an analogy. You remember when we were in school, the hardest part of school was the hallway, right? Once you were in class, you were supervised by the teacher. That was fine. And then once you got home, you were hanging out with your friends or, or hanging out with your parents. It was fine. But the hallway was where you were constantly comparing yourself to other kids, where you might get bullied and shoved into a locker. Well, now the hallway lives in your pocket. And every time you pull it out, which is like every 11 seconds, you're finding out how you compare to other girls in school. Well, I made a post and it has 17 likes and she made a post and it's got 444 likes. And bullying follows you home in your pocket. And the cruelty of, you know, I don't want to sound sexist, but the cruelty of middle school girls is a phenomenon yet to be explored. But for those who experience it, it is absolutely devastating. And so suicide in middle school is, is now a serious issue. Twenge attributes this to the rapid embrace of the internet and social media, noting that these realities arose from the fastest adoption of any technology in human history. We simply did not have enough time as parents and as a society to study the potential impacts of smartphones and social media in the hands of children. So, for example, we have now got definitive studies on the impact of television on children. And it's actually negligible. Uh, it's, they've discovered that massive amounts of television watching has a negative impact on mental health outcomes for children. But small, small doses seems to have virtually no effect. Same with video games, by the way. They find that video games only has a negative effect on uh, young people's psychological outcomes if they're allowed to play for more than five hours a day. Social media begins to have negative impacts on mental and psychological development at one hour a day. Basically, as soon as you take it out of your pocket, it begins to affect your mental health outcomes. And we just didn't know that. Nobody knew that. I remember having this conversation because again, like I got five kids who went, my oldest daughter like, started out in high school with the flip phone that you had to press three times to get one letter, right? And there were no apps on that. That was nothing. By the way, they've discovered that low tech cell phones have zero outcome 
are zero impact on mental health. Meaning, it's, and it's actually a bit of a positive because it makes kids feel safer because they can text their mom when when basketball practice is over. But as soon as you've got the internet and as soon as you've got apps on that device, mental health plummets. But we didn't know that. I remember having the conversation with my wife when we were having, you know, should we get our 15-year-old our daughter, our oldest daughter, should we get her a cell phone? And we're like, and I remember saying, remember they thought, I, I literally said, remember they thought that playing video games would turn all these young men into mass murderers? It didn't happen. It turned out it was, it was actually a little bit good for their spatial concepts awareness. It made them better at, at programming. It got a lot of them jobs. And it, you know, kept them from going out and getting drunk and driving their car into a wall like everyone my age did. Uh, so it was yeah, not so bad. I thought, maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe these cell phones will, will end up being the same way. But I don't know. Maybe they'll be bad. Well, like we said, we didn't know. And the technology went mainstream so fast that by the time we figured it out, it was too late. And, and that's, that's the challenge. All right. What's coming up behind? Bottom line, Gen Z is a generation in crisis. Everybody agrees with that. All right, number four. What's coming up behind Gen Z? A group called Polars. Why are they called Polars? Well, because they've been born into a highly polarized society. That name will change three times before we land on one. These are people born 2013 to 2029. All you need to know about them is they're basically people who never experienced a world before COVID and who are growing up and being parented by people who are freshly aware of the dangers of social media. Here's an interesting thing. Millennial parents right now and Gen Zs, those who have had kids, and there's not very many of them, are surprisingly in their parent, uh, they're su surprisingly common for them to adopt a zero tech strategy with their kids. They grew up internet saturated. It is astonishing how many of them are going tech zero with their children. Polars, these people that we're calling polars, will likely still be digital natives, but will grow up accustomed to rigid controls. Uh, many of them will be given dumb phones when they go to middle school and high school. Dumb phones have just recently come on the market. A dumb phone is basically a phone that you can text with and you can call with, but it does not connect to the internet. It does not support apps. These are wildly popular right now with Gen Z and millennial parents. That's what they're giving their kids. Polars probably will not get a functioning smartphone until late high school or perhaps university. Uh, there are also, uh, there's legislation right now that is attempting to be passed in the United States that for children under the age of 16, if they won't be able to get onto apps, you'll have to, they're trying to come up with a way to make sure that you're 16 to access apps. And uh, there's also uh, legislation that would see these phones uh, go dark from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. because of the effect that they have on sleep. So Polars will probably grow up in a world where their phone turns off automatically at 10 o'clock and all you'll be able to do at that point is call 911. Other than that, your phone will go dead at 10 and it'll come back on at six in the morning. Uh, they will also probably, as I said, carry dumb phones until they're 21. They will spend more time outside and they will likely be the most educated generation in human history. Beyond that, it's far too early to say how this generation will develop. Number five, this is our last section. What are the implications of all of this for Christian life and ministry? Well, there are some obvious challenges. Millennials, as I've mentioned, are the least generation or least religious generation in North American history. Uh, in addition to uh, the causes we've talked about, individualism, we've talked about that at length, there is also the factor that they are closely identified and wildly sympathetic to LGBTQ concerns. So here's a quote from Twenge, who again, she doesn't say whether any of this is good or bad. She just gives you the numbers. 
For many millennials, many religions' non-acceptance of LGBTQ people was a breaking point. In a 2012 survey of 18 to 24-year-olds, millennials all, two out of three said that they thought Christianity was anti-gay. Nearly as many believed it was judgmental and hypocritical. That view continued into adulthood. In a 2019 study, six out of 10 millennials said religious people were less tolerant than others. So here's what's interesting. When you were trying to evangelize um, somebody from the silent generation or the boomer generation, for example, the job was convincing them that Christianity was true. So you used to have conversations about creation and uh, is it possible for someone to rise from the dead? Because we were trying to convince them that Christianity was true. With millennials, the task became convincing them that Christianity was good. With Gen Z, the task is convincing them that Christianity is safe. Luke mentioned that Christians are often 10 years behind culture. Everybody's still training for apologetics with silence and and millennials. We're all getting our arguments together for uh, creation and, and uh, you know, is our miracles plausible? And we're all reading C.S. Lewis miracles. And it's like, ah, that's not even the conversation anymore. You, you, gotta, you should probably start with, is Christianity good? And then move on quickly to, is Christianity safe? That's, that's the task now. It's a whole different ballgame. <sighs> Just want to be careful of the time here. They're very critical of anyone who questions anyone's self-expression or perception of identity. And so, of course, churches are going to face enormous pressure. They're going to think that if we move on identity issues, let's take LGBTQ as an obvious example. If we move on identity issues, then perhaps we'll get more sympathy from millennials. Of course, that's a losing battle because we're probably not, well, we're certainly not able to go as far as they will demand that we go. Parents and grandparents will face similar pressures at the personal level. I would say every other week, I have a conversation at church with a grandparent who is being told that if they will not use the preferred pronouns of their grandchild, they're being told this by their child, who's probably a millennial, that if they do not use the preferred pronouns of their grandchild, who is a polar, who may be as young as seven years old, that they will be cut out of the life of that child. This is happening on a regular basis. Parents are being told that if they cannot celebrate the child's expressed identity, that they're guilty of abuse. The strain of these new realities will be immense. In addition, churches will struggle to achieve harmony and peace inside the congregation. A recent New York Times article had the headline, the 37-year-olds are afraid of the 23-year-olds who work for them. <laughs> I thought that was a marvelous title. Uh, that's a way of saying that even millennials, right? Like if, if you're my age or older, you find millennials strange. Well, if it may be, com may be comforting for you to know that the millennials are terrified of Gen Z. Uh, they don't understand them at all. Uh, millennials are managers now. Gen Z are entry-level employees. And Gen Zers don't talk to anybody directly. So if they're offended with you, they don't come and talk to you, they write a letter to HR and ask for you to be fired. Uh, true story. So lead pastors today who have associates and assistants who are millennials and Jed Zed are confused, scared, and frustrated. Holding all of these people together into a cohesive community will be a challenge. Now, in terms of mission, the gap between the church and the culture has never been wider. This is both a challenge and an opportunity. So let's talk about that. 
The opportunity for us to be salt and light as Christians has never been greater. If we can create healthy, flourishing, multi-generational communities in this period of cultural chaos and instability, we have a tremendous opportunity for outreach and witness. As I said on Sunday morning, the gap is good for the gospel. Now, to capitalize on this opportunity, we'll need to be clear and convictional within. There was an interesting article on Christianity Today. It came out about three weeks ago. The title of the article was, it was another catchy title, Welcome to Our Church. Here's what we believe about human sexuality. Meaning, you can't wait for that anymore because people coming in your front door, they want to know. It'll be their first question, so you might as well bring it up. So churches, it was interesting, you know, 10 years ago, churches were just trying to be silent on this. All these sort of, you know, new age leaders, you know, guys my age, the Gen X gurus were saying, you know, let's just be silent, you know, let's take a decade and just repent and think it through. And you're like, uh, not an option. People are asking us. So, you know, being quiet is a losing game. And it's, it better be the first line out of your mouth now, or you're out of the game. Uh, when visitors come to your church, they want to know, what's your policy? What do you believe about human sexuality? That better be the second thing after you, that you say after you say hello, because um, they want to know. So we've got to be clear. We've got to be convictional. We also have to be kind and generous in our posture towards the community. So we need to think very carefully as churches about how to be welcoming without being affirming. I was in uh, dialogue with a young lesbian lady in our community. We would meet at Tim Hortons and we would talk. She was coming to our church, but people didn't know she was a lesbian. And at one point in the dialogue, she wrote me a letter because we did most of this by email, of course, because she's a millennial. And um, uh, she said her struggle was in our church, she would sometimes overhear people in the lobby making disparaging comments about gay people or jokes about gay people. And she said, it just, it didn't feel safe to me. Now, interestingly, we were, we were able to keep the dialogue going and, and the, this conversation went through many iterations, as you can well imagine. But I, I took our congregation to task on that. I said, listen, I'll make you a promise. We'll never believe anything different than we believe right now. Like we believe what the Bible says, male and female. Like we believe that sex is between one man and one woman only within the context of marriage, like 100% stamped it, no erases, like we're in. But nobody gets to make jokes about gay people in this church. And if you feel the need to do that, please go somewhere else. We need to be welcoming. We need to be loving. But we need to be clear and, and convictional. And figuring out how to do that is going to be really, really, really tough. And getting your people on board is going to be murder. Because those who share your convictions probably won't share your attitude. And those who share your attitude probably don't, don't share your convictions. Uh, so there's work to do for sure. But if we can do it, if we can build a multi-generational, highly tactile, relational environment that is loving, but also very, very clear, then we're going to be increasingly attractive to lonely, frustrated, isolated, fearful, and unfulfilled people over the coming decades. That's a long-term strategy. We're going to have to invest in it now, and we're going to have to get our house in order fast while simultaneously adjusting our posture and witness toward the world. 
Wow. There it is. Thank you, Paul, for bringing so much to the conversation about generations. I know that there is a lot to talk about, and we got into even more detail during our Q&A session after the talk in July, which is coming up for you right now. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time tonight to share with us. Uh, you know, obviously tons of people here really engaged and we're excited now, you know, listening to the podcast to get a little bit deeper into some of this stuff. And so I'm just, I'm curious from your perspective, you talked earlier tonight uh, when we recorded the, the session, you know, you talked about how your church is multi-generational and you've got all these different things. You also talked about how a long time ago it wasn't always like that. And you were in mm-hmm. another church that was very specific. Was that an intentional choice that you made or was that something that your congregation demanded of you that you become mm-hmm. more multi-generational? Because I see that some churches do really head in the direction of uh, uniformity, you know, one generation, it works really well, why mess with it? Right. And you've got other churches that are pushing, no, we need to include everybody. Yeah, I mentioned uh, when I started in ministry in 1994, uh, the church that, that I uh, was ministering in was doing something that was actually pretty common. So I, I'm not singling them out. At the time, targeted church was, I don't know if I'd say the majority approach, but it was certainly a common approach. And we unashamedly said, we said publicly, unabashedly, we're a church for baby boomers and their children. And there are great efficiencies in taking that approach. Um, you, you only have to provide a certain range of programs, so you can kind of go deep within a narrow spectrum. Uh, but, but again, as I, as I mentioned in my presentation, the weakness of that approach, of course, is, well, who, who's going to target a church at seniors? Yeah. Uh, who's going to target a church at the disabled? Right? There are all kinds of demographics that are going to get left out uh, of a targeted approach. So that experience, I think, just birthed in me a desire uh, for something better, for something different. And so, you know, of course, when you, when you start out in ministry, you have zero authority within the institution, right? Like you do what you're told with whom you're told to do it. Right. And, uh, so, you know, I started off as a youth pastor and then uh, became an associate. And I, just gradually over time, the resolve grew in my heart that if ever some church is foolish enough to entrust me with the lead pastor role, uh, I, I will work very hard towards um, a multi-generational model. And so at, at the church where I'm at, that was an area of commonality. Meaning that was something they aspired to, and that was something before I before you started. Yeah. Okay. And something I aspired to, so that was part of why it was a good match. Okay. And so that's become just part of our, our vocabulary. We talk about the fact that we are multi generational by design, uh, meaning it's it's not an accident, it's not a concession, it's a passion. Do you do you have to teach that frequently within your congregation, or do you think the buy in is there at this point that they were like, yeah, we're yeah. in, and and almost you know new people come into the church and they say, oh we notice they're doing this multi-generational thing yeah. and it's working or do you have yeah. to constantly reteach it? Well, both. I would say like you obviously, you always have to reteach your vision and your values because there's, you know, nowadays there's pretty constant shuffle. Pastoring today is a little bit like standing in a river, right? Like right. Your people are just going through the church because yeah. they're moving into the community and they're moving out of the community. So we have, we have, you know, a, a pretty high turnover rate, like every church does less so than probably in the cities, but um, you, you, you know, over a five-year stretch, you might replace 30% of your congregation. That's just the way it goes. So you're constantly reteaching vision. And yet, I would also say, it's become part of our DNA. And and people will come to our church because they're attracted to that. They're like, well, we want a church that teaches the Bible, that, you know, engages in local mission, and that is multi-generational by design. So it's part of sort of the smell we exude in the community. Yeah, very good. I'm I'm wondering, so you talked about these five, six generations, you know, there's some that were in, some that were out. Um, and, and you gave a really good, you did a great job tonight of kind of saying, here's some highlights of each of them without going too deep, deep, deep. But you also kind of said, here's some things that, you know, how they interact. 
I'm wondering if you can go through for me and just identify a little bit with each of those generations, maybe starting with the silence, Sure. you know, what is the, their greatest strength? Mm-hmm. And, and the second question followed, like, what's their greatest weakness? Sure. Because, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone, no. but I do think sometimes it's good to hear, okay, here's that top thing that I need to be aware of. You know, I, I, we were, you and I were joking earlier, I'm a millennial. Uh, I can't hide that because I do truly prefer to text and email people yeah. than uh, <laughs> talk on the phone and all sure. of that. I think I've actually got my voicemail turned off on my phone. If you leave, yeah. try to leave me a voicemail, it will say, my voicemail is not turned on. Please email or text me. Yeah. Because I was so petrified of listening to voicemails. I don't know what triggered that, you know, a few years ago in me, but I said, I'm yeah. done with this. Uh, just send me a text. Sure. I'd gladly answer a text. Um, you've got my phone number, obviously. Yeah. So find a phone, call a friend. But uh, do you, don't call do you a use proper grammar and punctuation in your text? <laughs> I do, but that's because I was an English major in undergrad and I don't have a choice. Well, then that. you are, you are a unicorn among yeah, millennials. I, most I, millennials. I'm, I'm almost a Gen Xer. I'm not quite, yeah. you know, so. I think most millennials type with their faces. I'm convinced yeah. <laughs> of that. So I did. You, you uh, and I guess our podcast audience will have heard this from this, this session, but you went through a series of strings and I think you combined a bunch of different things. And I was right along with you. I was like, I think he's starting to poke fun now. This is is going a little bit too far. You started combining a few things. Hopefully no one translates that out loud. So yeah, just give, give me kind of like the top highlight, you know, the greatest strength of each of those generations. And, and I I want that because I think it's good for us to celebrate the strengths and each of those generations brings uniquenesses that are good and bad. Um, And I think that'll help our conversation. Yeah, and this is uh, off the top of my of course. head. So yeah. meaning no so, warning. Uh, yeah, don't take this all with a grain of salt. Uh, but I, I would say, starting with the silence, uh, and for those who are listening, now they all have heard the original presentation, yeah. so they don't need me to repeat all this. But for silence, I would say maybe, probably their greatest strength is their stability. Um, they they believed in institutions. Uh, I had a friend say to me once, uh, not not too long ago. Um, he said, you know, when you, when you go to anything like a Kiwanis music festival, uh, or if your kid is in a dance competition, all of the judges are like silence and mm. baby boomers. And because those two generations in particular really invested in institutions. And, and it, we were both sort of wondering, hey, when the baby boomers retire, like, who's going to replace these? Because you're not going to get millennials to sit on the Kiwanis Festival music, you know, judging circuit. Right. Like, that's just not going to be a thing. Uh, so how, how is... Not that? as volunteers. That's, that's what I you mean. You have to pay them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's, it's... So I would say, when you're talking about the silent generation, they were remarkably stable, emotionally, familial, in terms of, of their family commitments... Um, they were the sort of the generation before divorce became commonplace. Uh, they're personally and psychologically stable. They have very ro- low rates of uh, deaths of despair. So I would say they're just a stable generation. So they provide great ballast in any group. It's wonderful to have some silent generations, for example, on your board. Um, they they tend to be less destabilized by change and by mm. crisis. They're, they're they tend to just be good, solid people. As a as a weakness, uh, I you know of course some of these are structural weaknesses. They they are not tech natives to anything. Uh, like silent generations, you know. I my parents. It's a running joke. You know, my mom still struggles to figure out how to use the VCR, and right. the fact that she has a VCR and desires to know how to use it is remarkable. Um, and uh, we've all kinds of funny stories about her trying to shove CD-ROMs into computers that don't have CD-ROMs and all these kinds right. of wonderful things. So, so there's a sense in which they feel they they are disconnected from a, a lot of the mediums by which life life happens and dialogue happens. So that that is a structural weakness, I would say. Okay. 
then in terms of uh, the baby boomers, uh, in terms of of uh, strengths, baby boomers uh, are still baby boomers are, are continue to be the backbone of society, right? Like they're the managers everyone is trying to keep from retiring because they do a great job. Um, they are stable. They are reliable. Um, they are, by and large they're also flexible. Mm. Um, baby boomers desire to understand millennials and and Gen Z to. Most silence just find them incomprehensible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say a lot of silent generation people feel like there's been too much change and they're they're done. Like, like they just want the world to go back to the way it was. And, and whereas you know, baby boomers make a real effort to understand. Uh, so they're extremely valuable in a church as well because they they typically do want everyone to be understood and they're sympathetic to those above them and those below them. So that's very helpful. Then, in terms of uh, Gen X, I would say their their strength is similar to the to one of the strengths I mentioned for the baby boomers. Gen Xers are often cultural translators because they have they have older siblings who are boomers, they have parents who are silents, they have grandparents who are greatest generation. So they they have a a scope of awareness that still stretches pretty far back. And then their kids are Gen Z. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you were saying I was being yeah, hard on yeah. millennials because I have no familial connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy that way. I don't know them. <laughs> my parents are I don't silent. have to defend my child. Yeah. Yeah. I got an older brother who's a, well, you know, so, yeah. but, and my kids, of course, I got five Gen, Gen Z kids. Millennials are just incomprehensible. Um, no, but uh, so Gen Xers are cultural translators. They tend to be very, very valuable in that sense. Um, they are cynical. They're nowhere near as institutionally committed as boomers and silence. So we're not, it's not my generation that's going to be in the Qantas club, right? It's, uh, that's, and, and, and like you said, unless we pay the millennials, it won't be your yeah. generation. Yeah. So, I mean, society as a whole is, is facing some challenges. It's hard to get Gen X guys uh, committed to church membership, uh, to belonging to an institution, to contributing to the life of a community in that sense. So that's a bit of a weakness. Hmm. Uh, when you get to millennials, millennials are shockingly ambitious um, and staggeringly well-educated, uh, like millennial pastors. I mean, half of them have PhDs and look down on you if you don't know. I mean, and, and, and you almost have to tilt your head and say, you know, that in, you know, in every previous generation, a pastor with an MDiv was staggeringly well-educated. And, and, but I mean, millennials just, they, they real, they're a tremendously well-educated generation and they're, they're technologically fluent. Um, so, uh, the, the, I mean, the strengths that they bring to a community are obvious, uh, in terms of, of their, um, their detriments or liabilities. You mentioned communications style mm-hmm. is a struggle. Um, it's, it's difficult to sometimes maintain eye contact and talk in person and all these kinds of, of kinds of things. And then they are, um, they have adopted the slow life strategy. So uh, they often uh, lean back from grown up responsibilities that people my age think they ought to be assuming. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so sometimes there is a, uh, uh, hesitance to take on responsibility. When you get into Gen Z, I mean, we talked about Gen Z at, at, at length. Empathy, if you're to pointing to strengths, I mean, obviously they're digital natives, so um, every one of them can can do wonderful things with technology that are very, very helpful. Um, I've frequently asked my son to explain things to me. It's wonderful to have Gen Z young people in the house. They can 
explain AI and everything else to you. They, when I got my first smartphone, they taught me how to use it, all that wonderful <laughs> stuff, right? It's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, it's, it's the opposite of parental controls when your kids set up their phone for you and then, <laughs> yeah. you know, your phone goes dead at 10 o'clock. You're like, hold on. <laughs> well, all my kids know my password because they set yeah. everything up. It's wonderful. Yeah. 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 But, uh, and then with, with Gen Z though, I mean, we, we've talked at length about, about the weaknesses. I mean, their mental health is fragile. Um, and, uh, facing difficulty and, and upheaval is destabilizing for them in a, in a way that it ought not to be. And, and hopefully in the future will not be. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the instability that appears to be native to Gen Z will, will drive them to Christ and cause them to put down roots. Mm. Um, you know, that, that these waves of anxiety and depression will, will cast them on the rock that is Christ. Uh, so I'm hopeful that this is a short-term liability. Hmm. <coughs> we can fix that. You can edit that out. <coughs> Thanks, Abhishek. I'll say it right now. Mm -hmm. I know who's editing this in October. So there's all these similarities, differences that we can kind of cast, and sure. you know, strengths and weaknesses and all of that. When when we, you and I originally talked about this, I love that phrase, bridging the generational yeah. divide. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, my heart is there. We are, the church I attend is a multi-generational church. MBC almost by definition is multi-generational. Yeah, right. you know, we've got the campground where we've got people who've owned trailers for almost three generations now. Um, but One of my favorite things about, about MBC, I said this to somebody just yesterday, I think, is how many grandparents I see up here with their grandkids. Yeah. So grandma and grandpa have retired up here. They've got a summer trailer or whatever. And, and their grandkids are coming up for the summer. Yeah. That is awesome. Uh, that is healthy. That is life-giving. We need more of that. Yeah. And so we, we, we desire and, and crave that multi-generationalness. Yeah. And yet it, there does seem to be this disconnect. And so we need these bridges yeah. to kind of create connection. Um, I touched on a little bit earlier, but I am curious, you know, is there hope for the silence connecting with the Gen Z or the yeah. boomers connecting with the millennials, yeah. you know, the whole phrase, okay, boomer and, yeah, and yeah. all of that stuff. Like <laughs> we love to make fun of each other. And yes. yet deep down, especially in Christian community, yeah. we need to be reaching out together because yeah. my life is less if I don't have silence in it. Uh, sure. My life is less if I don't have Gen Z in it. You know, yeah. my daughter's almost 10, my son is six. So, you know, I'm going to be made fun of by them all the time. And they sometimes yeah. already roll their eyes at me for some of the things I don't understand. Yeah. Um, and yet we, we need that deep mm -hmm. connection. And so I'm curious on your thoughts, you know, just trying to make those bridges. Is it that we just need to kind of sacrifice ourselves sometimes? You know, um, you mentioned during your talk tonight about how millennials were the generation where everything was positive and everyone got a trophy. And I feel yeah. that. So I'm, yeah. I'm involved with the ringette community. My daughter plays ringettes yeah. uh, like hockey. Yep. For those of you yeah. who have never heard of it and are listening to this podcast, because half the people say yes and half the people go, what? Yeah. Um, but we, we actually made the decision as a board not to hand out trophies to everyone yeah. because we're millennials who receive trophies for everything right. and felt like it wasn't valuable. And we want our kids to feel the value of earning a trophy. Well, and so millennials only are parenting if, very different than absolutely. they, than oh, they were yeah. parented. Yeah, we're not quite, you talked about zero tech parenting. We're yeah. very low tech parenting. Yeah. I was impressed. My daughter came home the other day from school at the end of the school year and she had written a, a paper or something like a short thing about why phones shouldn't be given to a child till they turn 16. And I was like, yeah. I will be using this against you yeah. in about three years. When 100%. you want your first cell phone, I will pull out this paper. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is remarkable to me how much we've reacted as parents parenting our own yeah. kids now. So. And yet we do have to bridge these divides. And I'm curious, yeah. you know, what kind of work does that look like? Do I need to go read seven or eight books about it? Or mm. is it as much as inviting someone from the silent generation over for dinner? 
you know, how do we start that? Well, I mean, the, yeah, good luck selling that to, to a millennial, right? Because that sounds yeah. terrifying, right? Invite, <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. uh, I, I would say this. I, I think the church has a tremendous opportunity to facilitate meat world interaction. Um, and, and I also, M E A T. Yes. Meat world. Yes. <laughs> yes. Meat world. Uh, and I suspect there'll be a hunger for it. You know, uh, generations don't travel on linear paths. Like we, we talked earlier about how the, so much change happened to the boomers, right? They started off right. sticking it to the man. They were the hippies in the sixties. They ended up as the yuppies in the eighties. Like what happened? Nobody would have predicted that in 1970. And so you can't look at where people are now and say, well, this is where they will be. Hmm. And so I actually think you're going to see a rebound, a, a reaction in millennials and Gen Z. And there's going to be a reaction away from technology toward meat world community. And if the church is there functioning as a multi-generational community and they've got an open door and they're patient and they're willing to you know, help these people get up to speed, I think it's going to be a tremendous opportunity because where else in the world would you go? Where right now would you go? If you're a, you know, a, a recovering millennial um, internet addict, who wants to make meet world connections, where would you go other than the church to find multi-generational community? But my son and his friends were, were talking about this just the other day, and they were saying they feel like they're at such an advantage over their Gen Z friends because, you know, they've, they were all forced to go to church. As, mm -hmm. You know, as they were saying, they're kind of laughing. Yeah, yeah, Our yeah, yeah. parents all dragged us to church. But as a result, I'm they put it on my resume. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. But as a result, they know how to look into the eyes, maintain eye contact and make polite conversation with mm -hmm. 75 year olds. None of their friends know how to do that. The very yeah. prospect of that is terrifying. Yeah. And so my, my son who's, who's finishing up in college is saying like, uh, w when they're asked to do presentations in, in school for his program, for him, it's a no brainer to get up and talk and interact and make eye contact to, you know, to, to have banter with the professor who's my age. Because like, yeah, he's just, it feels like church after service, right? Like you got to figure out how to make conversation with all the Gen Xers who come yeah. over and want to talk to you. Uh, and, and so he feels like he, that church has basically catechized him or socialized him in mm. behaviors that are going to be valuable to him in the marketplace. Yeah. And, and so he's like selling this as like a side benefit of church to his friends, right? Like come to church, learn to talk to old people, yeah. uh, right? Learn to talk to, you know, and, and by old and people. we might introduce you by to old Jesus people, at the he same mean, time. He means yeah. you. Yes. <laughs> Me and my slightly white beard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So meaning all that is to say, I, I think the church has a tremendous opportunity. Now, it, so step one, obviously build and maintain a multi-generational community. Step two, though, is be intentional in creating you know, cross currents, we uh, cross interactions. So we've actually started a program called cross care in our church where it, we intentionally get groups interacting across generations. Mm. So I, I'll give you a couple of examples. We'll get a group of high school students who are all Gen Z and we'll take them over to a, a widow's house and they'll rake her leaves or shovel her driveway or gather up all her apples or whatever. And then she'll come on out with all her home-baked cookies and thank them all. And they'll interact. And the kids think this is the greatest thing ever. They, yeah. It's like extra grandma time. And, and they love it. And the seniors love it, of course. Well, so that's one. But then we've also got a bunch of, of boomers, like early retired boomers, who have fishing boats. And uh, they're, they're going to take uh, a group of junior high and senior high students out and teach them how to fish and how to boat and bo boat safety and all the, cause the kids, they don't have, they spend all the time, yeah. you know, interacting with screens and they're going to go out and, and learn all about the difference between green buoys and red buoys and, and, uh, how to fish and how to put a worm on a hook and how to pull it off. And, uh, that's cross care. Um, 
getting generations to in, invest and to connect. Uh, you have, so you have to facilitate some of that. So create a context, but then also facilitate. So you, you almost went there and I love it because the transition was perfect. We have, um, I've often wondered whether it's better to have small groups in a church and I, some churches do small groups or life groups or, yeah. you know, home group, whatever you want to call it. Some, some churches do that where the group is very monogenerational, sure. right? So yeah. everybody, and I've been a part of those groups and some yeah. of my closest friends come from, yeah. uh, you know, almost 10 years ago now where uh, we were a monogenerational group. All of our kids were born within 2013, 2012, 2014, like those three years. And so we still maintain lots of connections, although we're dispersed against the, across yeah. the province. We've got a couple of friends overseas, you know, and we still love to chat with them because sure. we did life together for two yeah. or three years and it was easy. Yeah because we all got each other. And totally. yet there's other churches and our, our church now does multi-generational small groups where we could have, uh, you know, my kids who are 10 and six with my wife and I, with a couple of boomers and a couple yeah. of silence. And, you know, we've got yeah. probably a couple of greatest generation, even almost just hanging mm -hmm. on there. There are a couple of them are in homes and, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. But, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Cause there, there is something very lovely about mono-generational. You're building yeah. deep community with people who get you and you yeah. don't have to justify your child crying. Right. But there's also this value of the multi-generational small group. You know, yep. I'm, I'm curious in your thoughts on that. Like, is I'm it? I'm a both and guy on that. Love it. Go. So <laughs> I, I would say facilitate, mm. don't force. Mm. Um, like, I don't like being forced in into inter social interactions. It's because you're a Gen Xer. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. But like, so as a pastor, I've learned to relate to everybody. And, right. and so that's great. But, but I'm also a human being. And, you know, so just as a human being, a bunch of my friends are up this weekend because they're like, oh, you're speaking this week. We'll come up and hang out. Guess what? They're all my age. They're all Gen Xers. They're, you know, like we've had probably 20 friends here and they're all Gen X. Is there anything wrong with that? No, these are my friends. Um, so that's great. That's, that's kind of my peer group at the church and, and we have a blast together. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, that being said, we, have, we create a lot of contexts where generations are going to mix. So I would say, again, it's about facilitating as opposed to forcing. I don't want you to try to force feed friends to me. Like I, I want to choose my own friends. Right. Um, but I also want there to be opportunities where it's really easy for me to connect across generations. So we do all kinds of stuff where, where that's going to happen and where we facilitate it, but we don't force it. We don't, you know, put people into groups and say, this is your group. Uh, we have a variety of, of what we call micro community experiences. Some of them are, are uh, generationally narrow and some of them are generationally broad. Yeah. And then we do a bunch of community programming that is in, intended to facilitate cross-generational connection. What would you say? Now, I happen to know the church you attend is larger. Yep. Um, and so there are joys that come with large churches and there yep. are difficulties that come with that. What would you say to a smaller church? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll, by way of example, I had, for a couple of years in high school, my parents attended a Presbyterian church where there was physically no one my year, the year above me or the year below me. And mm -hmm. it was devastatingly lonely to yeah. the point where I started yeah. attending with my parents' permission a church with some friends from school who happened to go to a church not too far away and all that. And it worked for yeah. me. That's where I was baptized. Yeah. Almost forgot to invite my mom and dad to my baptism. That's a, that's a millennial thing <laughs> right? right there. Yeah, My parents say, they're like, you're your doing thing. what on Sunday? <laughs> oh, you should probably come to that. Yes, you should. Didn't I send uh, you a text? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think I was allowed a phone back then. So I'm going to put that on my parents, but they're boomers. So it's okay. Uh, you know, so what would you say to the smaller church? Because it was hard for me and I didn't have the connection with people who were, you know, they were, they were nice people. No one, yeah, yeah. no one was mean to me. It wasn't, there was no bullying or anything. My brothers yeah. who were younger than me had friends they connected with. Yeah. I didn't have anyone. Sure. So small church can be hard. Yeah. And yet I think 
what I'm hearing is like, if we do multi-generational by design in order to bridge these gaps, it should be possible with the small church and the big yeah. church and the multi, yep. the mega church, all of this. What do you got? Yeah, that's I, I'd say the same. Like, I, I don't, I mean, sure. In a smaller church, just the numbers are going to suggest that there might be a gap, right? I mean, if, if you only have four kids in junior high, it's mathematically possible. You won't have anybody in grade seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so sure that could happen, but I would say there's no reason why a small church can't be multi-generational. I grew up in a church of a hundred people, but it was multi-generational. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know that it depends on whether you're a large church or a small church. I, I think a lot of it has to do with design. Are you trying to be multi-generational? See, a lot of churches just end up, and it's interesting, it's not just older. We tend to think like, oh yes, if we're talking about a mono-generational church today, you're talking about a church filled with silence. And yeah, sure, that there are churches like that because they refuse to shift on music. Mm-hmm. They refuse to shift on a, on a few other things. And as a result, it is only a, it's the sort of church that only a 78 year old will yeah. attend. Um, but actually I've, I've seen a number of church plants that are the sort of place that only a millennial would attend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that there's like, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable there. Like yeah. half the songs you're singing, I like, and I, not to sound old, I'm 49 years old, but there's music. I just, I, I cannot handle. And, uh, and I've been to churches where it's all loud and jumpy, clappy, woohoo, and, and it's, it's uber millennial. And, and I just feel like, do you want anyone else to come to this? Uh, are you aware that, that this is overtly narrow? Um, so I've seen that on, on both ends of the spectrum. In a multi-generational church, you get everybody together in the leadership and you say, all right, um, let's remember that everything we do, we want grandma to feel like she's welcome. We want mom and dad to feel like they're welcome. We want the kids to feel like we're, we want cousin Sue, right? Like we, so let's think this through at every level of programming. You know, my, my worship pastor, uh, you know, gets annoyed and and, and to his credit, he's phenomenal. He makes a great effort at this, but he, like the classic email from me, because he sends me this, the rough draft of the service order. And like every two or three or four of them, I write back and say, which one of these songs is for my mom? Yeah. And he'll be like, oh, uh, well, yeah. we'll shift this one and we'll put in this one. And then I'll write back and say, now make sure you sing that song the way my mom likes it. Yeah. Because if this comes out as reggae, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not having that talk with my mom anymore. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> right. Like oh, I always I say it. like, play my mom's song the way my mom sings it. Yeah. Um, not the way you think it should be sung. Anyway, yeah. like I said, our worship is great with that. But the point is that's design. Design is when you force everyone in your group to think about everyone in your group. Yeah, it's intentionality. Because right? none of us do it by nature. Yeah. You know, like if I was designing a church, I can tell you exactly what songs we'd sing because they're all my favorite songs. Yeah. And, uh, right, but 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 again, I, I'm trying to think of the group. And, and I think any church that does that, like I said, my, my church growing up did that. We were 100 people. So. Yeah. One of the things you and I have talked a little bit about, and I, I think it, it came out a little bit in your talk tonight, is that um, often the impression that people give is that it's the older generations who need to change in order to accommodate the younger generations, right? Yeah. So, you know, here's the book for boomers because boomers still read books yeah. on how to understand your Gen Z child or your right. your um, millennial child or whatever you want to call it. Um, and yet, I, the more I think about it, the more I think Gen Z millennials have to be willing to also incorporate change into their life to yeah. reach out to the boomers and the, you know, the silence totally. who are above them. Yep. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, you know, I, I almost feel like we talk a lot about 
understanding the younger generations, yep. but how do we reach out to older generations and make sure they feel incorporated? Do I need to go bake cookies and let right. grandma rake my lawn? You know, I don't think yeah, so, but no, I hear you. Well, I say, so the, the, why we do that, I think is fairly easy to understand. It, it's two things. First of all, the older you are, the, the more we expect from you typically. Mm. Right. So, you know, if I'm talking about a, a baby boomer, I'm talking about somebody who's, you know, 65, 70 years old. All right. I expect you to be a full grown up. And uh, as a full grown up, I expect you to be able to serve and sacrifice and, you know, make concessions for the benefit of the family. If I'm talking about Gen Z. I might be talking about a 12 year old. Um, right. My expectations for you are, are age appropriate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's some of the dynamic. Some of another aspect of the dynamic is the fact that, you know, silence are, the, are as a characteristic of their generation, very committed to religion and institutions. So they're here, right? There's very little we could do to dislodge them. Uh, they're here. And, and so, you, you know, how much do you as a millennial need to do to keep grandma in the church? She's not going anywhere. You couldn't get rid of her with a forklift, right? Yeah. So, so, so again, the, the, the impetus is, is really downward. Like we have yeah. to figure out because your generation is the least gener- religious generation yeah. in North American history. So we have to figure out like, okay, where's the disconnect? What don't you understand about why you should be here? How, how can we make this more welcoming to you? That, that is, that's the conversation because mm-hmm. you're the one drifting away. Now I, I would say uh, to millennials, you need to understand. Uh, and so, you know, cause you said, what do I, what would I say to this person to the millennial? I'd say, you need to understand the institutions matter. And if you think that you can just live your life off of your casual, informal relationships, uh, you know, you will discover your garbage ain't getting picked up next yeah, week. Yeah, like that's yeah. not that's just not how the world works. Yeah. And so you need to invest in these things. And uh, and then to the Gen Z, I think I would say, hey, listen, you need to understand that multi generational community might just save your life. Um, what you're doing has been demonstrably linked to to depression and despair. Um, it's not good for a man or a woman or a child to be alone. Like you need community. And, and so even if it's awkward and even if it forces you to learn some new skills, man, this might save your life. And you know what? I'll appeal to your practical benefit, you know, might save your life and also help you get a job. Like you need to learn these skills because until you rule the world, you've got to get hired by guys my age. Um, and so come on out and uh, be a part of this. And so I, I, I think, you know, I think that's a saleable argument as well this is good for you yeah you talked during the q a with the audience tonight about um is christianity true yeah is christianity good is christianity safe right and i think the first two no one really questioned is christianity true or is christianity good those are things that that really you know yes or no is christianity true yes or no is christianity good but when when you said is christianity safe i saw a lot of people kind of go huh yeah. I've got questions about that. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that safety because I don't I don't know that it was all captured during the talk, but I think it's something that's really relevant to the younger generations to say, what does it mean when someone says, I need this to be safe for me? Because even as a millennial uh, who doesn't really subscribe to the whole idea of triggered conversations yeah. and all of that, I feel it in my D, my millennial DNA that if something doesn't go the way I want, I can say, ah, this doesn't feel good to me. I'm going to back out of this because I don't feel good about it. I don't feel safe for whatever. And I have to choose to engage, even though I'm mentally able to acknowledge that i still feel the desire to kind of pull back and say this isn't for me um can you talk a little bit more about what that means is christianity safe yeah so i I mentioned that you know when you're when you're doing apologetics or evangelism with say a baby boomer 
then you're having the conversation, is Christianity true, right? So you're talking about science and creation and all these kinds of things. The resurrection, is that plausible? Miracles. Uh, when you're doing apologetics or evangelism with maybe a Gen Xer, you're asking the question, is Christianity good? Are you trying to answer that? With, uh, with a Gen Zer, the question is of, often, is Christianity safe? Because again, self-identity and self-expression is their core value, right? Individualism is their core value. And, and they begin to sense that Christianity is not necessarily willing to affirm everything that they believe about themselves. Um, they sense that we're the stick in the mud. Um, mm. we're, we're slow to adopt what, what they're quick to adopt. Mm. And so they feel threatened at their core. Like if, if I come to your church, are you going to tell me that my identity is different than, than I believe it to be? Mm. Are you going to question my self-expression? And, and that's where their, their identity is. That's where their safety is. And so that's what they mean by is, is that safe. And so I, I think then, and, you know, as we talked about in the Q and A, I think that, you know, the thing we have to acknowledge is that if, if that's what you mean by unsafe, then Christianity is unsafe because Christianity does challenge us. And, you know, the essence of Christianity is repentance where, where we, where we stop, we turn around and we listen to God. And the essence of Christianity is, is following Jesus saying, okay, you're the Lord. You're the one who gets to tell me who I am. You're the one who gets to tell me how I should feel. And when you invite in the Holy Spirit in your life, then he begins to change you from the inside. Mm -hmm. And so the self is displaced, uh, you know, <laughs> crucify the self and live to the spirit. Wow, that sounds really unsafe to a millennial yeah. and or, or to, a, to a Gen Z. To a millennial. Too. Yeah, to a millennial, a millennial too, And to then that. all yeah, the yeah, more yeah. to a Gen Z. So yeah. yeah, it's unsafe. But I think, I think how you carry on that conversation is you say, yeah, it's, it's unsafe in that sense. But, but I would say, I would, I would contend that ultimately it is trusting your creator and following your savior, following the one who loved you enough to die on a cross for you, listening to the one who knows you better than you know yourself, who knit you together in your mother's womb, that ultimately that will lead to a life that is abundant, that is stable, that is flourishing, and that is eternal. And that is ultimately the safest way to live. And so I think you can say, yes, I hear you have safety concerns, but, but actually I think the way you're living is unsafe because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Yeah. So you're, you've actually given over navigational control to, to a broken and confused entity. Oh, how much safer, how much better to surrender navigational control to the God who knows you and loves you. So I think it's more safe in the long run, but you probably have to have a little conversation about what does safety mean? Yeah. When I'm, even as you're talking now, I'm thinking about how you, especially for Gen Z, but I feel it with millennials as well. You have to kind of answer all three of those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because I think eventually once you get past the safety, you then have to get to the goodness. Yeah, that's and right. And then once you're past, then you have to get to the trueness, right? right. And, and those two maybe could be interchangeable. I think depending on the person, some people would need the yeah. trueness before they need the goodness. It would depend. I, I suspect of... with Jen says, you've got to answer first, is it safe? Yeah. And then you'll answer, is it good? I don't know whether you'll ever get to, is it true? Yeah. Uh, right. As a, uh, you know, as a millennial, you, you can probably see both, both directions on the yeah. spectrum. Yeah. And speaking as a millennial, I feel that, you know, uh, my dad is a physicist by training. And yeah. so although the apple fell very far from the proverbial tree, uh, I, I am who I, am. <laughs> I take all yeah. of his physicist nature with me. 
Uh, he's encouraged us to question everything and that's good, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, a part of my salvation story is questioning everything and finding everything else lacking, but for Christ. Yeah. Um, praise God. But it's, um, yeah, it's a complicated world we live in where you have to answer these questions and each of the questions is answered differently. Almost, you know, a boomer reaching yeah, out exactly. to a millennial might have a trouble yep. explaining the goodness versus the safety. And, and so it's, it's application grid. You know, we were talking yeah. about this in the Q and a, uh, you know, so the, the preaching is the fine art of reading the text, explaining the text and applying the text. Okay. Well, the text doesn't change. And the explanation of the text might get better, but it doesn't change either. I mean, the text means what it means. Preferably shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but the application, that's where this conversation becomes very helpful. Uh, you know, in seminary, pastors are taught to think through something called an application grid. So you take your story. Okay, well, the text, you read the text. Then you explain the text. Well, the text means what, what the text means, right? You apply all your tools to explain what it means. But now you're supposed to think through, okay, well, how does this story, how does this text relate to the widow? How does it relate to you know, the, the, the person working a nine to five job. How does it relate to a, a young mother? How does it relate to a teenager? How does it relate? Right. So that's your application grid. And that's where I think this, this entire conversation becomes useful. The truth is still the truth. The gospel is still mm -hmm. the gospel. The word is still the word. Um, but how do we connect it to people who are coming at the world and coming at life in such remarkably different ways? Paul, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I know that there's uh, so much more to unpack and we can keep talking about this forever. From all of us at NBC, thank you so much for taking the time yeah, and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing more of this. All right. Thanks. God bless. Thank you, Paul, for taking the time to teach this summer at NBC and for recording that Q&A session with us. Your ability to make important connections means a lot to us, and we are so glad to have such incredible teachers so close to us at NBC. Next week, we have Bernard Mukwavi here to talk about pluralism and sticking to your Christian faith in a world of many beliefs. As a man who has served ministry on at least three continents, I'm excited for what he has to share from his varied experience, and I can't wait for you to hear it. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend, subscribing on your favorite podcast app, or giving us a like on NBC's social media pages. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Center. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRock. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese. Audio recording by the Summer 2023 AV Team. And the theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina Tabakal-Hotz. See you next time for another episode of Transforming Culture. Sad.